Hello and welcome to episode 34 of Cultural Capital. I'm Andy Hazel. I'm Eloise Ross. And I'm Anders Furs. And today we'll be reviewing the Melbourne film What If It Works and featuring an interview with the film's writer, director and producer Romy Trower. We'll be sharing the Cultural Capital film diary and our top three dystopian futures of cinema. But first, the film that's inspiring that top three, Dennis Villeneuve's Blade Runner 2049. Humanity cannot survive. Replicants are the future of the species. But I can only make so many. He's got every gun in the city. I've got you. We have to stop him. What do you want? I thought you might be able to help me with the case. It's 35 years after Ridley Scott brought us the first Blade Runner, and Denis Villeneuve's sequel is set 30 years after the original's futuristic 2019, in the same eternally dark but artificially neon decaying Los Angeles, with a whole new race of bioengineered replicants that has been created to overcome those of generations past. In the same vein as the events of the first, Blade Runner 2049 is about Kay, played by Ryan Gosling, a cop and Blade Runner whose mission is to retire replicants who no longer fit the system's desires. Rather than Terrell Industries, the company in charge is now run by Neander Wallace, a disappointingly one-dimensional villain played by Jared Leto, and Kay's boss, Lieutenant Joshi Robin Wright, pits Kay up against him. But instead of Wallace, Kay has to deal with his assistant slash replicant slave, love, Sylvia Hoax, who is perhaps the most complex and interesting character in the film, a woman who is evil but is at the same time trapped into doing evil and who cannot lie but who cannot ever be free or happy. Before we saw it, Denis Villeneuve asked us to kindly not give away any spoilers and to let people experience it freshly as we got to. So I think that's enough of a setup. Anders... What did you think of the new Blade Runner? Well, the uh, the question of plot summation is interesting because I think a lot of people have said, well, you could probably, the plot boils down to one or two sentences, really, strung out over a very long running time here, almost three hours. Um, look, this film has kind of grown on me. It, it's, conf- it's been a confounding film in the way that no other Hollywood blockbuster this year has for me. And I really didn't know what to make of it when it finished. And I'm to some extent, I'm still working through my response to the film. I What did I love about it? I loved, and uh, there's been a lot of commentary about this, but the visual design is just stunning. It's hard to understate just how beautifully composed all of these shots are and uh, you know, massive shout out to Roger Deakin, is it? The cinematographer. It's such a compelling portrait of this city the people who are left behind it's sort of intimated at various points that you know the off world is where all the rich people slash um, anyone who doesn't want to live in the hellscape that is planet earth has made it out to we never see that as in the first film it's it's mostly set in this cla- a claustrophobic vision of los angeles in a way so i loved all of that i loved sylvia hoax as this um android uh, sorry, it's this replicant who sort of does the Jared Leto character's bidding. Uh, I thought she was fantastic. In fact, she was more compelling than Ryan Gosling or Harrison Ford. Having said all of that, I'm not sure that the narrative particularly grabbed me. I don't think I've really cared about Gosling's character's journey. And it was, uh, this is my pet peeve in cinema at the moment, is it was very serious, very, very serious. And there's not much in the way of emotional texture it sort of starts at capital s serious and just sort of stays there with a couple of very forced attempts at humor which is something that uh, is sort of bugging me about a lot of contemporary hollywood movies having said that i think there's a lot to like about it as well what did you think andy you're fresh from the film <laughs> it's true i have just uh, just returned recently from seeing it at the moment yeah i'm pretty much on the same page i think there is i was a pretty i was a bit disappointed with the storyline i thought they brought some really interesting ideas into play um, particularly to with identity and memory and, you know, whether, you know, having somebody else's memories, how, you know, how somebody might deal with that. Mm. But they didn't really take it into the, in the places I was hoping. I mean, it, it's what you just said earlier about it being fairly emotionless is a, a criticism leveled at the first film as well. I mean, it, it, I think there is more going on in the original film, both story-wise and in the way of... I agree. ...there being interesting characters. It, 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 yeah, it sort of hits this emotional register that... And it's quite an open film in a way, and it's a weird thing to say, but I, I, I mean, I'm a big fan of the original 
and I think it really does encourage sort of a bit of a fill in the gaps and active participation in the text that perhaps this film doesn't quite do or does in different ways. Yeah, and I was hoping that for a little more because Hampton Fancher was one of the writers here and also worked on the original Blade Runner, but he's been joined by Michael Green who worked on Alien Covenant and Logan. Mm. So he's perhaps he's responsible for some of the the other, you know, the, the places where Philip K. Dick's book, after it finishes, you know, he obviously we're working with the same some of the same characters. But then it just kind of went in this in this way where they would set up a really interesting premise and then they would kind of abandon it to look at you know, replicant-replicant relationships or how it might manifest within a loving relationship or, you know, there's a lot of allusions of uh, cyber sex and that sort of stuff, which, you know, is visually you know, quite interesting when you're seeing these humongous billboards and these ballerinas and all that sort of stuff going on and you're seeing the way the women are, are, you know, are working in this, or well, you know, feminine characters are working in, in this world, but I really felt it was left underexplored and there's a huge opportunity for, for that to really play into the themes that they were talking about. But I was disappointed with this film and I was trying to figure out why. And I'm like, it's not the original, but it's not fair to always compare a film to the original. But it's a continuation of that universe. It's too much the same as the original and not different enough. And I know that they sound like two of the same things. But basically the storyline is almost exactly the same. It does gesture towards some of these interesting ideas, as you said, Andy, like what do you do when you figure out your memories aren't your own? But the original did that very successfully and with much more intrigue and emotional investment with the Mm. character of Rachel who Mm. figured out that she was a replicant. And so it's doing a lot of things that are exactly the same and not distinguishing itself But at the same time, it's set 30 years in the future. And I just feel like in 1982, they imagined a future in 2019. And it was so different from 1982. And now we're imagining a future that's the same kind of length in the future. And it's almost exactly the same. Yeah, you're right. As the original Blade Runner. Like the Los Angeles is the same. The city is the same. The atmosphere is the same, pretty mm. much. I mean, you know, there's there's new updated replicants, and he has a drone. Um, and there's but yeah, like he, that. but the thing that is different, I suppose, is that a lot of the spaces are a lot cleaner, and there's no dust. Whereas everywhere in the original Blade Runner was was kind of much more atmospheric because you had the dust and you had that kind of feeling of the physical space mm. being there. Mm. But I just feel like it. It's it hasn't done anything new and it hasn't imagined a, a future that's further in the distance from from what it was before. And that to me is a problem, I think, when we're so excited about a new Blade Runner. You know, it's easy to say, but I have been thinking about it and I just think, well, why not rewatch the original? Well, I did last week. Yeah, um, <laughs> yeah, but like instead of this. Um, true. I was actually thinking when I came out of it, I was kind of like, I'm going to ask Anders, were you surprised at any point in 20, Blade Runner 2049? By the story. By the film itself, yeah. Oh, by the film itself, was I surprised? That's a good question. Uh, no, was I? I can't remember. Uh, I guess that final narrative reveal was slightly surprising-ish. And actually, I, I we can't talk about it without spoiling, but we'll try. That was actually one of the most interesting parts of the film because it took a Hollywood narrative convention and it flipped it on its head in, and not just to play around with narrative, but to make a thematic point. And I really appreciated that. And you, I hope you understand what I'm saying if I you've do, seen yeah. the movie. Mm. Um, <laughs> and I thought that was really clever and was probably the smartest part of the whole film. I agree with you that Jared Leto was quite underwhelming. His character yeah, was very... Yeah, I agree. Yeah. Oh, uh, nothing, especially when you compare yeah. him to Dr. Tyrrell. I'm yeah, like, yeah, totally, you know, totally. And Roy Batty, like, you know, yeah, they're yeah, the, yeah. the two you know, most incredible kind of empathetic villains of all. Yeah, and there were there were moments where it felt like the narrative was being strained in order to create those beautiful set pieces, like that fight that they have in Vegas with all of the old Hollywood uh, figures oh, yeah. popping up in hologram <clears throat> on the stage. It's just like, I mean, why? I mean, I get why, because it looks beautiful, but why... Why well, is this happening? Well, I thought that was a bit nod to the noirish elements of the original, which were seem- substituted here, yeah. I thought, for a mystery that never was really that mysterious. Yeah. I mean, we got the tree, we got a few clues thrown towards around the beginning, and that was like, okay. I what, can see so this Elvis is a substitute for a noir atmosphere? No, um, the fact that Deckard would be in an abandoned casino, holed up with a bunch of whiskey. Without spoiling anything, and this is all in the trailer, you know, we see these zooms through this Atlantic City in a yeah. thousand years' time sort of thing. 
you know, we've got these amazing statues, which I think, you know, are really striking in the trailer as well. Yeah. The spectacle of it was incredible. Um, And the scale of that space was, it was quite remarkable. And I loved when... Frank Sinatra came on the jukebox. I get, but I was like, I was watching it and I was just thinking, why? I mean, I know why. Yeah, why? Tell me why. Well, there was a, (laughs) it's a terrible reason. So there was a Frank Sinatra song at the beginning. At some point in the story, Ryan Gosling's holographic slave girlfriend thing, Joy. Joy. It's her. um, Decides. That, like, if Ryan Gosling is, like, going to be, go out and pretend to be a real man, he needs a real man's name and not the letter K, which is his cop code, Mm. and calls him Joe. And then the freaking Frank Sinatra song, Set Him Up Joe, I'm like, come on, can we just, like, he's going to go out and, like, set some stuff up so that he can save the day. I'm just like, "Mm." I don't know. We're just like, isn't that stupid? Yeah, that is stupid. Um, no, I didn't mind it. I mean, I, the, well, I like the moment, but the yeah. reasons why. I mean, the song is amazing. Yeah, the song yeah, is yeah. amazing. Yeah. But, and like, was, that's that's why. It was interesting to see him. Oh, they had the, hologra- the, yeah, holograph, the holograph of, um, which was kind of, of Frank cool. Sinatra inside. Yeah, I mean, I love, obviously, one of the great things about the original and this, so, so the entire Blade Runner world is this decaying future. Uh, yeah. Just all about breakdown and decay and like the you know malfunction of the past and so this old jukebox that just has this ability to have the a singer inside it is is kind of incredible and like very beautiful yeah and and very beautiful reimagining yeah i I agree and that's why i really loved in fact i think the highlight of film maybe for me was the opening because here again it plays with that idea of you know what is human and what is robotic and you can't tell the difference and blah 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 so um, in the opening he's a his uh, ryan gosling's character been has been commissioned to retire which means to kill a um replicant who's off farming played by dave Bautista, who I think is becoming a weirdly compelling character actor, popping yeah. up in all sorts of things. He was great in Guardians of the Galaxy too. It was the best thing about that movie. Anyway, now that I tell it, it sounds a little bit pat, but I did like at the time, you know, he's a robot, yet he's, you know, he's this home chef and he cooks with garlic and, like, Gosling's character's like, what is this? I've never smelt this garlic before. Like, what, why are you cooking? What is cooking? What is this? In very obvious ways, it plays with the idea of, does the fact that you cook with garlic and listen to Frank Sinatra mean that you're a human? And when replicants do it, does that mean that they're humans? You know, blah, blah, blah. All that kind of stuff I find the most interesting thing about Blade Runner. And I just think that this film engaged with those questions on quite a superficial level. I don't think it explored them quite enough. It introduced these ideas, but then it was just perhaps, I don't know what it was distracted with. Maybe it was too distracted with visuals, with music, um, I mean, another thing that I think we have to mention is the score by Hans Zimmer, which gestured towards the Vangelis score, but in, in no way at all was as emotionally. I don't know. It's kind of the same way with Rogue One, where the, the composer of that made some strains as though it was approaching the original John Williams mm, score, but mm. then just shifted away from it. And I thought, what's the point of that? Like, perhaps making something all your own would assist more in making this a more of a whole film in some way. Yeah, it's a beautiful match of sound and vision, I think. And mm. I was never bored. I would, I would still definitely recommend this. I'd also recommend it, seeing it at IMAX if it's possible because I was really surprised that Villeneuve didn't do a Christopher Nolan where he was like, I'm going to put it in the biggest screens possible because I need the audience to be wowed. You know, people are coming here to see the amazing mm. continuation of Blade Runner, which is best known for its you know, sheer scale. And so, yeah, I'm a bit surprised. Pretty much every review I think so far has said, see it on the biggest screen you can. And I would I am very, yeah, I'm very, to very intrigued about why it's Bond. Because the promotion's been huge. It's got Ryan Gosling who and Harrison Ford, two ginormous bankable stars. I mean, the length, the running time is the, the only time. reason that I can think of. Um, because, you know, it is so exciting. It's got very yeah. good reviews too. Um, and people love Blade Runner, so I, I don't know. I just feel like we have to mention the sexual politics of this yes. film. Or gender politics and sexual politics. Because, yet again, uh, in another kind of way, and I feel, I did feel really uncomfortable about this, and then I was thinking, like, is it justified somehow? And then I thought, mm, no. Mm. You know, the, there's three, maybe four female characters in this film. We have Sylvia Hoax, who is, like, this assassin character, 
Robin Wright, who is the police chief, who's awesome and who Ryan Gosling listens to. And we have, I forget her name, but the woman who plays Joy. Um, Anna de Armas. Anna de Armas, who was great, I thought. And Dr. Anna Stelling, Carla Yuri, who did a beautiful performance, I think, although she only had two scenes, you know, probably not even seven minutes on screen. And I did think, obviously, this is not nothing new, but it's a story about a man and we have these all of these women around him who are basically stronger than him and are helping him and they are more of the story. I mean, Sylvia Horrocks is more of the story than Ryan Gosling, if we boil it down, more important than Ryan Gosling, than Ryan Gosling's character, but she is still only this sideline. And, again, it's this idea that, you know, the man is being told, used as a vessel through which to tell the story and to sell this product when in actual fact he's not... You know, and we've all said, I think, that he's not the most interesting character. No, God, no. And what I really liked at the end was that, and I don't think that I'm spoiling this at all, but obviously he does meet Deckard at some point. And then there is a reveal. And towards the end, it's revealed that it's not actually Ryan Gosling's story. It's Harrison Ford's story or perhaps someone else's, depending on what your opinion is. But I really liked that, that even after all this time, it was still Harrison Ford's story. <laughs> but then even beyond that, I just thought, well, why couldn't it be, you know, well, um, it, I one mean, of the female yeah, characters yeah, through yeah. which we... Yeah, exactly. I mean, it's a similar yeah. argument that was like, uh, argued against uh, Star Wars, the, the, the recent Star Wars, that, you know, we're given, we're told it's going to be one story, then it turns out to be right. a story of feminist rebellion across the galaxies, which may not have been such an easy sell to the target market of teens or whoever this demographic is that people are trying to chase by having these gender bent stories. Right, but Star Wars did it differently in that it actually was Ray's story. It it became that, yes. And it was Mm. not in this case at all, I don't think. No. I mean, I don't think you could argue with a straight face that that's the case in this film. No, it would be a strange sell to do Blade Runner 2049 without Harrison Ford because you couldn't really focus on Sean Young because she was a fairly... Well, not without Harrison Ford, but without Ryan Gosling. Although, I mean, I liked Ryan Gosling and I thought he's, um, you know, he's charming and obviously his star persona is really charming and then eventually he does. These emotional breakdowns are so heartbreaking, I thought. Mm. Anyway... I just think that obviously we need Harrison Ford, but why do we need Ryan Gosling? Well, maybe it comes back yeah. to Philip K. Dick's story, and there was possibly I haven't read it, so I don't know. So yeah, there aren't so many strong female characters in that. It wasn't written with the twenty seventeen mentality, but but we're in a twenty seventeen mentality. Well, now. yeah, the film was made you know I mean? in that. Yeah, I completely agree. I think I thought Sylvia Hoex, as I said before, I mean she she was by far the most compelling character which is weird because she's this automaton who kills people. But I think because her performance was so good or so compelling, it sort of lifted that role above, you know, what it could have been. And, yeah, I, I kind of wish the film made more of it. And because you could see on her face this internal dilemma that she had in terms of, like, her moral outlook and that yeah. her behaviour and her body and that they didn't necessarily align yeah. and that that was really interesting. And yeah. if we're talking about the film dealing with really interesting ideas like the original yeah. did, then I think that's one of them. Totally. I thought Jared Leto... This character was completely over the top and ridiculous. And I heard a rumour that that was meant to be David Bowie. Oh, that's a great rumour. Originally, yeah. I can imagine him delivering yeah. those lines. Yeah, and that um, he oh, would have I'll obviously. I know. I'm sorry. Um, would have actually been, like been much more amazing. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, anyway, yeah. But I, having said all that, I mind it yeah ultimately i think it uses the future to talk about the present in a quite interesting way and that's what the original did i think at the time yeah i quite liked it but i i don't know i'm just falling like i'm getting more and more blasé about it as Mm. as i go Mm. like get further away from Mm. seeing it Mm. to be honest Mm. with you but you know i didn't love the original when i first saw it i think i had to see it three or four times until i was like yep this is something special exactly the same for me so perhaps this could be the same thing (laughs) Um, yeah, there you go. And now to the Cultural Capital Film Diary. 
A showcase of the world's best films about design will be on show at the State Library of Victoria's Village Roadshow Theatrette from October 12 to 15 at the Askin Archie Fletch Architecture and Design Film Festival. Also running from October 12 to 15 is the Alliance Francaise Classic French Festival at the Astor, which is featuring a retrospective of the films of the actor Jean-Paul Belmondo, including Godard classic Pierre Lefou, Jean-Pierre Melville's Leon Maureen Priest, and Alain René's Stavisky. Over at Acme, Josh and Benny Safdie's film festival hit Good Time, starring Robert Pattinson, is screening until October 25th. On the 14th of October, Matthew Copland's The Exhibition of a Film is an attempt to blur the boundaries between art gallery and film and features the work of musicians Nick Cave and Lee Ronaldo, as well as Leah Singer and Lawrence Wiener. The Greek Film Festival runs from October 11th until 19th at various cinemas around Melbourne and includes some of the most acclaimed Greek productions of the last couple of years, including one of Cultural Capital's 2016 highlights, Chevalier, Yorgos Lanthimos' Alicia Silverstone starring The Killing of a Sacred Deer, Tony Gatliff's musical drama, Giam, and the Cypriot film Boy on the Bridge. Finally, the Environmental Film Festival is playing at various venues around Melbourne. Highlights include the virtual reality film Melting Ice, a full-dome audio-visual experience at Science Works of Johnny Knox's Remote Sense, and Tyson Mawaran's documentary Connection to Country, which will be screening at Federation Square on October 14th. Oh, I love driving fast. It's just, well, I, I ruined my car cleaning it. I thought cleaning a car was a good thing. Um, well, my cleaning and your cleaning are probably different. So how many are? There's ten of us. If you imagine it like a house, and that there's many rooms inside me. It's fascinating. <laughs> As if. <laughs> and that was a clip from the Melbourneian film What If It Works? Romy Trower's film about a man with extreme excessive compulsive disorder and his friendship with a woman suffering from dissociative identity disorder. Before we share our thoughts about the film, here's an interview I did with the film's writer and director, and I began by asking her what drew her to the film's subject matter. This particular story, it's it's a very personal film for me. Um, so my brother has a very severe case of OCD or obsessive compulsive disorder, a lot like Adrian in the film. Yeah. Um, and my aunt is a psychiatrist, and she specialises in patients with multiple personality disorder, also known as dissociative identity disorder. Um, So she has um, been working with patients with that disorder for a really long time, something I was really fascinated with for a long, long time before I knew I was going to write a script. Um, So I had access to literature and case studies and all sorts of really, really fascinating stuff. And uh, when it came to the time where I realised, you know what, I want to write a script about this, um, I knew that I needed to meet some people that had um, multiple personality disorder. Um, And... um, I was actually able to sit in on therapy sessions with a few individuals that that have, um, call it DID for short, um, that have DID, and um, I was able to watch the process of switching from one part or persona to another, which I thought was extremely important um, if I was going to be able to write something that was authentic and also to be able to direct an actress to do it. So um, it was a real privilege to have that access. So did you actually draw from real-life case studies from some of the dialogue and some of the points? Absolutely. I mean, perhaps not... not I mean, I probably have drawn in the dialogue more than I may have even realised because, you know, you kind of absorb that stuff. But um, certainly my understanding um, was so much better uh, having seen it for real. You can read and read and read, but there's nothing like actually getting to know somebody in real life versus reading about a case study in a book. So it certainly informed the character of Grace... Um, and all her various parts, um, and yeah, it was it was it was really moving and really interesting, and I'm really grateful I was able to do that because I think it made a world of difference when it came to sort of you know choices in terms of the actresses uh, Anna Sampson who plays Grace. The choices we were making, I had that solid backup of knowing that I'd seen it for myself and seen a variety of you know. Of, of, of people and the way they switched and, and how it happened. So I had a bit of a bank that I could work from, which was really, really great. Right, OK. Because one of the things that really struck me was this was a really brave and unusual story. Like, you have these really bold jumps from tone and you have this really kind of unusual, like, a connection with the, with the characters, which is quite difficult to do because in the early part, it kind of it takes, a, it takes a while to get to know them to get our heads around, like, what we're seeing. Absolutely. I think the thing with this film is it is about two characters that are, you know, for most people, they, they do 
suffer in an extreme way and it might be something that the average person has absolutely never seen before in their life like I've had people um, you know come to me and say look I never knew that OCD could be that strong that it could rule and regulate every movement that it could create such rigidity yeah I think it probably sheds light on on a a level or an extremity that some people weren't aware of definitely it does seem like quite a like a, a really fascinating topic but also the way that you've represented like using these hyper bright colours because I know the area very well of Eastman Street like my, my band rehearses at Eastman Studios with, and my friend's faces were like in, in the posters a lot down the street and stuff like that so that was That's kind of funny cool. so why did you particularly connect with that location <laughs> that geography of the laneways and the alleyways and the warehouses and that sort of thing to tell this story um, well firstly I'm a lover of street art and a lover of, of those parts of Melbourne Northcote and Brunswick and Fitzroy and all those gorgeous colourful spots and those laneways um, and I knew that I wanted the character of Grace to be an artist, um, a street artist, um, so it made sense to to set it uh, in that location. And um, for her, like colour is a really important part of um, the, the way she expresses herself. So, um, you know, the use of the neon pink in the film, it's very much her happy place. And uh, and so um, I, I use colour as a way, I suppose, of expressing uh, emotion and... Uh, it eases you in because the street is so easy and colourful and inviting. Um, yeah, okay. But it made sense that that's where Grace would live and uh, and so obviously choosing the right location was crucial and uh, as you said, Eastman Street, it's just um, it's a bit of a, a one-of-a-kind, that, that little street that they live in, so... Mm. Yeah, I was thrilled, Definitely. thrilled to come across it and thrilled to be able to put that on screen as well. Yeah. Um, can I ask how you came about the casting decisions? Because that would have been a really, really difficult, very careful decision you would have needed to make to put those faces and characters. Yeah, so with the character of Luke, um, he's played by an actor called Luke Ford. Sorry, the character of Luke, I just said. The character of Adrian, there you go, I've got them so mixed up in my head. That's, uh, that tells you something, doesn't it? He's a method actor and I don't know who's who anymore. Um, no, so yeah, with the character of Adrian, uh, Luke Ford, I'd seen him in The Black Balloon. He'd played an autistic um, kid and it was a phenomenal performance for which he won, um, I can't remember, he was an AFI at the time. Yeah. Uh, and um, and I, after seeing that, I, I looked at all his other work and, and I thought, geez, this guy, he, he nails it every single time. Um, and I knew that I needed an actor who was really dedicated and who would throw himself in to the challenge you know well before the the shoot began well before the rehearsal period began and uh, so he read the script years ago loved it and was attached for a long time while we were trying to find funding um, and and he was a wonderful uh, choice in that he threw himself into um, the OCD learning to navigate the streets of Sydney like uh, in, in in character and uh, started avoiding doors Always and, and touching, lifting up toilet seats with his feet, and not touching door handles, and uh, certainly not touching pets and dogs. And he was sort of practicing that and bringing that into his um, sort of um, world long before we entered the rehearsal period. So he came uh, already having taken on the OCD and, and with a, a terrific understanding of it. And uh, and then that was helped by uh, um, a long meeting that he had with my brother, who suffers from, uh, as I said. OCD in a very extreme way uh, and meeting with my brother just allowed him to absorb a whole other layer of uh, stuff that a method actor does they only need two minutes and they've picked up everything <laughs> under the sun um, so that was really uh, quite easy that that side of it and then um, the character of Grace you know for, um, for an actress to play a, a person with uh, multiple personality disorder with multiple parts it's really in the film she plays four roles in one uh, and uh, and then versions of them you know percentage wise 60% one 40% another at times uh, it's, it was a massive challenge and we did a really wide casting call um, and saw um, and saw just so many um, women and across uh, you know Melbourne and Sydney and um, but as soon as I saw Anna on a tape it was initially on a tape from, from Sydney I 
I, I had a really good gut feeling about her. I thought she had the range um, and uh, I still went about the, the process of, you know, watching lots of other auditions and tapes and we brought her, we brought her in for an audition and, and then had a second round and then brought her in to see the chemistry with, with Luke. And So it was a much longer process but um, I really didn't have any hesitation. Um, there, were, there were some other great actresses but Anna just something mm. in the gut. I just knew it. I just knew she was right and uh, I think she's, she's incredibly intelligent um, and uh, very hardworking and and she was brilliant. Right, yeah. And so was Brooke Satchwell brought in fairly early on in the casting? Um, not, not early like Luke, I guess, because it was a supporting role. Our, our biggest focus was, um, was uh, well, firstly, having Luke attached was really important to me. Um, and then uh, the next sort of big challenge was how are we going to find Grace? Um, so I think once we were underway with looking for Grace, we then were, right, who would be great? Um Brooke's awesome. She's always she always nails it. I think as well. Very smart girl. Very funny girl, um, and also a delight to work with. So yeah, Brooke Satchel was on board reasonably early um, in the casting process. Yeah. Mm, right. Okay. So you mentioned funding earlier, and it sounds like it was like quite a long period between creation and execution of this film. Can you talk a bit about that? What absolutely. That about? Absolutely. The old sop story of <laughs> I've been working on this for eight years, <laughs> so I've been doing nothing but sitting at the desk working on the movie. It was a long process. We received some uh, development funding from Screen Australia early on, which was really helpful. Um, but then when it came to production funding, we needed to raise private money, uh, which is really tough. It's really hard sell, uh, you know, going around pitching pitching uh, independent film as a really wise investment. It's, it's not the easiest sell. Um, and, you know, I think it happens for most filmmakers. You think you're almost greenlit, then one part falls down and then it's a few more months and then you get a distributor and you think, right, we're moving and then you lose a bit of funding and it, it's up and down and all over the place. So I guess between getting the right people on board, for me getting the right producer, getting Tristram Mile, who is such an experienced producer, he's produced films like Strictly Ballroom and The Black Balloon, which we just uh, spoke about, um, that, you know, getting Tris on board was super important to me. I wanted somebody with loads of experience and who I felt really connected with the material, uh, which he did. So a lot of those years was, was spent probably just waiting on meetings with people yeah, right. um, and then also yeah um, funding up funding down etc mm. so yeah roller coaster so, was it a situation where like you had Brooke on board then therefore you had a slightly you know you had a high profile actor therefore you could ask or people were more likely to give you money? Um, to be honest, I think when people were looking at the, the actors in the script, they were probably only thinking about the leads. I think that's um, that's probably... You've probably got more, you know, kind of push when, if, if the lead has a, a high profile. And, look, having Luke on board... Um, was great and that he's a he's renowned for his his wonderful work in other productions mm. and he has won some awards and um, but uh, no Brooke, Brooke came on board in the casting process once we actually knew we were right. going ahead with the film so okay. yeah maybe should have brought her in earlier <laughs> <laughs> I might have saved myself a year you know <laughs> yeah so was it actually did it turn out to be the film you wanted to make or were there cut the corners you had to cut along the way um, you know, I really feel that it did turn out to be um, the film I wanted to make. That said, once I found the location, suddenly I had, you know, an image of exactly the way it was going to work. I knew that it was going to be about two people that lived across the road from one another, but um, I wanted this colourful street. I wanted something that was that resembled more of a laneway than a street. But, hey, that's a, that's a big ask. You, you don't know if you'll find it. So I guess your, your, your vision sort of is, is shaped diff- throughout different parts of the process um, and um, I'm really pleased with the, with the way it turned out we obviously had limitations not having a, a massive budget but um, I, I was pleased that there were some really creative um, clever people on board who just found ways to to do things um, that produced a colourful exciting result without a huge amount of money and I feel like it, you know that often happens we, when you get those limitations you actually rise up and you find ways around things because um, you can always want more money, right? Like, yeah. But you managed to get some really fantastic, like, shots, like the aerial photography would maybe not be something you could have done when you wrote the first draft originally because yeah. the technology wasn't there. Exactly. I, I, when I sat down, you know, eight, nine years ago, I definitely didn't write drone. <laughs> but now everybody, everybody's onto the drone thing, so it's like an obvious, it's like an obvious choice to, to want to use it, especially in the way we've used it to sort of um, kind of 
show off those amazing laneways of, of Brunswick and all that incredible Melbourne street art. So, um, yeah, when it came to finding that location, it was kind of like, oh, the drone here, it's going to be perfect. Mm. Yeah, so, again, your vision, it keeps sort of evolving as you discover yeah. little, little gems. Yeah. <laughs> um, so with the main characters, I'm, I'm interested to know, like, how you perceive them as characters, like, along with their OCD or... You know, all their multiple or dissociative identity disorder. Yeah. Well, how we build the characters around the, those those um, conditions? Because in films like Malcolm or something that people may be, be familiar with, yeah. you have this world that's kind of been evolved around them to be able to manage a world in which they feel comfortable. I suppose to be able to be their full like, their full um, their full character, not just their symptoms, I suppose, which is often a way that people can be drawn in the in films if they're drawn unsympathetically yeah. or without the research. So yeah. how, how did you go about doing that, developing Yeah, well, I think because it comes from truth and it comes from reality, um, I don't want to say it was, like, easy, because that's probably a, a silly thing to say, but um, it felt relatively smooth in terms of creating a really full, real human um, in terms of both characters. Um, and whilst Adrian is really constricted by his OCD and his body is terribly rigid and he's frightened of touching things. He's got a really big heart. Um, he's a little bit nostalgic. You know, he, he hangs on to, to memories, whether it be of his, you know, his dad or his ex-girlfriend or um, there's a lot of warmth in his eyes and he... he um, he wants to help, you know, a homeless guy on the street. He he wants to make friends with, you know, some random people he encounters in a park, you know, um, who do do him a favour. He promises to return the favour and he sticks to it because he's loyal. Um, so I think there's there's a part of him that's that's generous and, and desperately wants to reach out and connect. It's just who will he connect with? Um, because uh, when you are so restricted and when you do look quite odd, I suppose, walking down the street, it's a lot harder than, uh, than not having a disorder. Often when you look at the representations of mental illness in cinema, it's often done very conveniently or it's like, you know, we'll have a nymphomaniac or we'll have somebody who, you know, like Rain Man who can win all this money at gambling yeah. or something like yeah. that. So yeah. was that a difficult... Were you conscious of that when you were constructing these characters? That it um, might be seen as to be... There would be a danger of inconvenience, I suppose. Yeah, um, I, I, I mean, I guess so. I don't think I was terribly worried about it because um, when I talk about, you know, Adrian being warm and, and having this generosity and he's very intelligent and he's very witty and he's got a self a sense of humour, etc., um, those are all qualities that my brother has. So I really feel like I, I, I drew on that. And to me, that's that obviously came from reality. So I felt really comfortable feeling like Adrian was completely real right. and, and rounded to me. Um, he's more than just his OCD. Um, and what he what he is, the the good stuff is is battling, is trying to battle through the OCD to shine through. And that's hopefully what you'll see yeah. during the film. Um, and uh, with respect to um, to the character of Grace, um, again having having met individuals that actually um, Suffer, suffer with uh, multiple personality disorder. Um, I was able to draw on some some real people, and it was beyond just the disorder. You know, um, Grace is is gentle and and a little bit shy, and 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 she's artistic and creative and um, and and kind and. Uh, and, and all of those features are, are very distinct to, to that yeah. that part or to Grace. When, when she switches, there's a, there's a sexual part that is so radically different and she's a little bit more um, kind of extreme or limited, but um, that's a very different shade. It's a very different part. Um, and that, you know, I've seen that in people, that shade and that type of person, so G represents a part of Grace, but I, I also drew on 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 people or a person that I know who operates that way and behaves that way. So um, for me, it can't just be a disorder. A character always has to come from truth, whether it be one individual I'm basing it on, or it's often parts of myself. There's so many parts of yourself that, you know, you can't go around and uh, display to the world. But, hey, get a script and you can channel all sorts of things. We, we all have many parts in a way. Yeah. Um, and, uh, yeah, for me, it either comes from one person or from, from many. I guess I'm, 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 I'm observant. I, I love watching people. I love engaging with people and 
you know, if you if you engage a lot and you talk a lot, as a writer, you've got a bank of of truth with you all the time. Melbourne-based filmmaker, writer and actor Romy Trower brings her feature directorial debut to the big screen with the romantic comedy What If It Works. Luke Ford stars as Adrian, a computer engineering PhD dropout who has a severe case of OCD. He clasps his hands together in gloves at all times, washes everything he touches in litres of detergent and is seeing a therapist to navigate these issues. Seeing the same therapist is Grace, a street artist with multiple personality disorder. They're opposites in many ways, but they meet and then begin to fall for each other. Most of the action takes place in the back streets of Northcote and Fitzroy. As the film's tagline says, it's a love story that seems impossible, but what if it works? Andy, did it work for you? Mostly, I've got to say, I thought the best thing about this was just the ambition. There was a boldness, there was just a bravery about tackling this subject matter in this particular way, and as you heard in the interview, it was not an easy task by any stretch. So I think a lot of people could have maybe gone, oh, I'm going to do a debut film, I'll get 30, 40 grand together and I'll make a horror movie, then I'll know it's going to get in a dozen film festivals guaranteed to get an audience. No, there were none of these sort of safe moves made. So I thought Romy did a really, really great job of tackling this story in not only an honest way, because she's obviously quite close to it, but also in the sort of hyper colour, like in the, just the brightness. I, I mean, I know this area in which it was shot very well, Eastman Street in Northcote. I rehearsed there every week with my band and my, the faces of some of my bandmates were on the wall behind her in some of those shots. <laughs> so it was quite strange. But I've also felt like I was seeing it for the first time because the, the, there was so, so much extra street art. The colours were really popping. There was a really imaginative use of drone footage, to, which I thought in a way, and didn't seem to do this for Romy, but it kind of mirrored the neural connections maybe, just all these laneways and alleyways and these sort of little ways that you can reach across mm-hmm. to make these connections. I think I'm just putting that there myself. But also uh, some of the other characters are really underexplored. I felt like the the, char- the focus was always returning to these two and other people kind of were there as narrative devices or to illustrate a particular quality in the character that Romy wanted to show. So I don't know if it's going to find a big audience, but I feel like definitely um, a worthy film. Yeah, I I liked this film, but I didn't love it. I don't know. I really did quite have a nice time watching it after a while, after I got to know the characters, I think. Mm. Um, I mean, I think you're right, Andy. I can remember no one except for the two main characters. But I think that they were very well written, very charming, brilliant performances kind of brought yeah, them to life. Yeah, really strong. They from- were the strongest parts of the film. I don't think the script was very good. There's a lot of clunky exposition that doesn't make a whole lot of sense where the audience I don't think really has much of a clue about what's going on. I feel like the final antagonism was way too neat in being wrapped up and that there was a little bit of overacting because organically the story hadn't quite reached its end yet and it just had to be brought together. I can't imagine really loving it as much if you didn't if you weren't from Melbourne and if you didn't know Melbourne. I mean, I feel like that we would all have this inherent connection to it because yeah. we know the area. And so perhaps we can overlook some of those other things that are unfavourable about the film because we know the area, we know the streets. It's so nice to see these places represented on screen. So that was really nice. And, like, there was a lot of great energy in it that was really, really nice and, like, quite intriguing and beautiful. So, yeah, having said that, I do quite like it, and I think that it's it was a nice, you know, nice film to watch. Actually, I found it rather endearing in a way, if quite broad and very, it was very sort of predictable, uh, at least until the ending, which I completely agree with you about. Um, I thought it was very confidently made, and you're right in terms of, like, the filmmaking, some of it was quite interesting. Yeah, yeah. yeah like, the moving cameras and, yeah, it was interesting camera work, uh, and it was very bright. The palette was mm. um, very bright, and, in fact, you know, explosions of colour literally occur at various points. Yeah, yeah. Um, which was cool. And... As you say, there's a real pleasure in seeing your own city on screen, much as in Ali's Wedding, which, uh, I mean, the building we're recording this very (laughs) podcast in features in that movie. And similarly in this film, I I think they shot um, a lot of night scenes with the skyline just down from my house in Footscray, which was cool. All right. So, yeah, it was enjoyable, but um, I completely agree with you otherwise. I would uh, probably most of interest to... Melbournians or people who have yeah. that kind of connection to the um, city. Because as um, listeners will notice in the interview, I asked about the ch- tonal shifts because I thought there was some huge jumps in tone, particularly yeah. in the last third where we're going from quite serious 
you know, discussions of mental illness to broad yes. comedy yes. to drama to like all this sort of stuff. And she was like, well, that's what it's like <laughs> yeah. <laughs> on yeah, the day-to-day yeah, basis. Totally. You know, this is, this is, yeah, it's not, it might seem strange to viewers, but I also, as you mentioned, Eloise, I struggled toward the beginning just getting to know, getting my hair yeah. around these characters. Yeah. Like, who are they? What, why are they acting like this? And it was, you know? Yeah, it started very, yeah, I was sort of off put to begin mm. with and I didn't really know was this being overacted, overplayed. Mm. I didn't quite get it. But the whole film was acting on the same level. So then I sort of got it. I think at a certain point mm. I realised, oh, this isn't, you know, the actors overacting. This is actually the level at which the film as itself is operating. And yeah. then I sort mm. of I got into it. Well, yeah, I've never seen any cinematic representations of OCD with this clasping of hands, that sort of thing. So I could yeah, I took a long time to get used to that. Yeah. It's interesting. I thought that, what's his name? What's the actor's uh, name? Luke Ford. Luke Ford. Luke Ford gave a brilliant performance and Adrian was a really realistic character to me. I know someone, not with OCD, but I know someone with autism and he does those same hand gestures, raising his hands, like looking down and looking around, even sounds the same. Not to say at all that like all people are the same and I hope it doesn't sound that I'm that way, but he was a very realistic character to me. In, in that way and so yeah. and I, I thought that they like kind of they were just two oddballs that didn't really get along with anyone else mm. and that they worked really well together and that that was just very sweet mm. and I liked how neither of them was particularly malicious or even the villain wasn't I mean yeah it was <laughs> the guy yeah oh yeah, yeah the guy from um, the Josh Thomas show oh yeah Wade Briggs yeah yeah, yeah Wade Briggs yeah mm. yeah I liked him as well yeah. I mean I thought oh, he was too. quite you know did, ha- gave a good performance yeah I was, I was a little confused as to why he was continually surprised mm. at the way that Grace was acting I thought he would maybe be used to this before moving in with her uh, all mm. that stuff notwithstanding I think the two central characters uh, were interesting and well drawn and their arc although it's thoroughly predictable, was executed in a very interesting kind of way. Mm. Well, yeah, pretty well. So, but yeah, I mean, yeah, it's, it's, it was a nice, endearing look. Yeah, also I'm glad it's an example of like low budget, low to mid, I imagine, budget Australian films that are getting made. I mean, these are, yeah. this is an unusual story. I don't think it's one I've seen before. There were, not, there were elements of Malcolm in it, but not that much, I didn't think. Yeah, yeah, it is great that this is being made. So I just need to mention something else and see if you guys also noticed. But when they were eating burgers, the burger eating folly was just like out of control. Really? Like, <laughs> like no one sounds like this eating burgers. Well, like no, what's going sorry, on? There was some miss- bad sound design. <laughs> Um, okay. That scene just like was really getting too much for me. But I mean, overall, I think that the all of that post production was was really quite good. Yeah. And especially if it is a you know a small budget, a micro budget film, even it's a brilliant and yeah. Brilliant and they could film. get the use of Manu Chow's song, which I was amazed. I was like, surely this is going under the radar, and they're hoping they're going to get picked up. But when you know in the interview, Romy's like, oh no, no, we just asked. Cool. That's <laughs> great. Like, great. Okay, cool. Because I, I would never have even thought <laughs> you'd have a chance of getting that. Anyway. Yeah, um, bold and interesting film, I think. In the year 2032... This morning, Summit Phoenix escaped from his cryo-facility. We are, quite frankly, not equipped to deal with the situation. Amidst a world of peace and calm... We're police officers. We're not trained for this kind of violence. How was the fiendish Simon Phoenix apprehended back in the 20th? In the end, it took just one man. John Spartan. You mean the demolition man. And finally, we're coming to our top three dystopian futures in cinema. So this is, of course, uh, inspired by Blade Runner 2049. To be honest, there aren't that very many non-dystopian examples of futures in cinema that I can think of. Anders, can I begin by finding out your number three? You can. And my number three is a film that I've talked about here before. So, you know, apologies for repeating myself. It's not Night of the Hunter. <laughs> um, but it is On the Beach. Oh, yes. So the dystopia presented in On the Beach is fascinating in that it's so temporarily compressed. The film takes place over a few short weeks as the city of Melbourne... Melbourne set film comes to terms with the fact that nuclear fallout will inevitably drift from the northern hemisphere to the south, killing everybody. Um, I've talked about this movie, yeah, as before, but what I found particularly creepy about On the Beach is how the psychological avoidance here plays out. So, for example, Anthony Perkins' character, his wife, is in complete denial about the whole thing, despite the fact that the government, the Australian government, has given all its citizens suicide pills, which, I mean, you can't get much more dystopian than your own government giving you the means to kill yourself. So despite all of that, people walking up and down Swanston Street as if they're not all about to die. And because of this disjuncture, I find it 
a very powerful film because we, the audience, know and the characters themselves know, although they're trying their best to avoid that realisation. And it's hard not to apply that same denial to our own lives and our own ways of being in the world. So that's what makes the dystopia this sort of very, it's, it's sort of like a, a spontaneous dystopia that erupts because of this nuclear war up north and plays out over a very short period of time before the inevitable <laughs> destruction of the entire planet. Yeah. <laughs> it doesn't get much more dystopian than that, Andy. It's What's your number true. three? My number three is um, a 1993 film called Demolition Man. Have you, either of you seen this? No. no. <laughs> okay, so the main reason, because so in the period of the 90s, there was this era where you could just have completely bananas ideas for films. Like the film Simply Resistible, for example, in which you can have a magic crab creating dishes in a New York restaurant. Um, Demolition Man is a similar sort of level of craziness. So in this, uh, in Demolition Man, Sylvester Stallone, Wesley Snipes and Sandra Bullock in one of her first roles play uh, a policeman, a criminal nemesis, and then in Sandra Bullock's case, a policeman in the year 2032. So in 1996, this uh, maverick cop with his own MO, played by, unsurprisingly, um, Sylvester Stallone, is um, cryogenically frozen in a prison with his arch nemesis, Wesley Snipes, who are, and they're both <laughs> accused of killing a busload of innocent people. And they, they get thawed out in 2032 for reasons that aren't immediately apparent. And so Stallone plays John Spartan and Wesley Snipes is uh, this extremely feminine criminal uh, character called Simon Phoenix. And during this 36-year prison sentence, uh, Los Angeles has become this place that is almost completely devoid of violence or crime at all. So the policemen have no idea what to do, what to do when a violent act happens. Anyway, so when um, Sylvester Stallone turns up, suddenly um, it's game on. And Nigel Hawthorne plays uh, Dr. Raymond Cocteau, who's this leader of this extremely clean and beautiful version of Los Angeles. Um, so it's really, really strange. There's all sorts of throwaway uh, lines about, like, well, Sylvester Stallone goes to use the bathroom in 2032. There's no toilet paper, but there are three seashells. And this is like a recurring gag that is never explained. <laughs> like, he doesn't know what to do with the three seashells. This sort of stuff. So anyway, like, it's just very, very strange. So first of all, it seems like this beautiful, like, very, very nice sort of version of 2032. But as soon as the more, the longer you spend time there, this underneath all this orderliness and neatness, there's complete chaos. Great. Well, my number three is Metropolis, Fritz Lang's Metropolis, which I guess some might argue could be like not a dystopic future um, because of how the film is set out. But, you know, it is a dystopic future after all. So this is set in Metropolis sometime in an imagined future from Germany's vantage point or point of disadvantage of 1927. I feel like I can't really say all that much about this film that hasn't already been said or that is not readily available. Everything is amazing. The city is bustling. The buildings are tall and beautiful and graceful. The monorail or several monorails are at the frontier of transportation. It's just incredible, this incredibly livable city above ground. But below ground, the dystopic underpinnings of this classless society are revealed. The plot isn't really of any concern with this film. I mean, it, it matters, but the, it's all about the visuals. This symphonic imagining of a futuristic metropolis, expressionistic cinematography, incredible sets and incredible costumes. And of course, Bridget Helm as Maria, the android post-human woman revealed as a glorious feature of this future, but of course being more than she might seem. I love this movie. It's so good and you need to see it in a cinema. I mean, watch it at home, watch it any way you can, but basically you can watch it um, in a cinema if you can and you'll be very lucky to. So a few years ago, a whole new reel was discovered. Oh, really? Oh, that's Argentina, I think. Mm. Um, I haven't seen this version yet, but I'm very keen. So that's... You know, maybe it'll creep up to number one, Andy. Yes, I'm very surprised it's coming to number three. <laughs> Can't wait to see what's next. <laughs> anyway. Yes. Cool. My number two film is Terry Gilliam's Brazil. <sighs> A bonkers dystopalooza. It's an absurd and completely over-the-top portrait of a society in total thrall to bureaucracy. I think this is a masterful film in many ways. It's sort of like a feverish nightmare. It's sort of akin to 1984 
through the looking glass of surrealism, visual surrealism and more, which is to say that it's us, this broader moment in time through the looking glass. Robert De Niro, shout out to Robert De Niro, giving this hilariously bizarre performance um, as the repairman that Jonathan Price's character, the main character, encounters. So, yeah, Jonathan Price plays this sort of everyman figure at the film centre. There's so much sort of going on here and it's got this bonkers ending that's actually... <laughs> well, it's actually... There's this, I've just thought of this. There's a parallelism with Blade Runner in these arguments over who gets final cut of a film, whether the filmmaker or the studio, and, in fact, what that final scene or sequence says about the ending of the protagonist's journey because as in Blade Runner the studio's edits for Brazil like completely flip the film's meaning without giving anything away which is exactly what happened in Blade Runner when they made those cuts yes um what I really like about this film and what I like about a lot of Terry Gilliam's work is that it's perfectly suited to film as a medium it's so sort of over the top and surreal and visually striking that it's sort of like this weird this fantasia that's been conjured up out of the 1980s as like this it's sort of like this fever yeah this like nightmarish vision of the you know society that created it so it reflects ourselves but through this really weird crazy absurd um, surrealistic bent which I really really enjoy and I think is what makes it so filmic in particular so yeah if you haven't seen Brazil I really recommend it it's a great film yes so my number two is unsurprisingly Blade Runner uh, <laughs> <laughs> I mean set in 2019 so it's still kind of futuristic yes. um, for those who haven't seen it um, Los Angeles is rendered as a sort of hyper Tokyo there's a lot of Asian influence which makes for a very interesting kind of multicultural well we don't really talk about that much when we talk about 2049 in the way that we get some Cyrillic alphabet you get uh, quite a bit of Islamic text around the place. Yeah, there was a different sort of influence. There's much mm. less of the Japanese influence or Chinese influence you get in Blade Runner. Um, stylistically. Yes, def- yeah, of course. So um, the Jordan Cronenworth's uh, cinematography and David Snyder's art direction, I think, pretty much stood the test of time. Still very, very striking. I thought that was a particularly good example of the way that you would never have imagined a noir being put in this sort of world, but then it was kind of turned from this science fiction into this beautifully unique approach. And it was done very much just by Ridley Scott himself, I think. He was kept getting a bigger budget. And a lot of the stuff isn't written in the script at all, of his, uh, his vision that he had for that. Um, the, the way it's raining all the time, I thought it works beautifully. It plays into the whole Ridley Scott's background as a maker of commercials where he would spray water all over the streets before he'd shoot anything so you get the reflections from the lights everywhere. So you have this kind of ultra bright world, even though it's an incredibly dark film. Yeah, I thought we couldn't really have a top nine without having Blade Runner in there. My number two is a 2013 film called The Congress, um, which... I really want to see this movie. Screened at... No, uh, I appreciate your enthusiasm. Um, Screened at the Melbourne International Film Festival a few years ago and I don't think has had another appearance in Melbourne. I don't think it's had a release anywhere. It had a short season, I know, in New York at some point, but not a proper release. Anyway, written and directed by Ari Folman and adapted from a Stanislav Lem 1971 novel, The Futurological Congress. This film is a cautionary warning about the future of cinema, a portentous mixture of celebration and despair about the death of familiarity and about being forced to bear witness to the triumph of the machine over reality. Robin Wright stars as a version of herself in a reality that can only be this one, I think, although it is futuristic and somewhat unrecognisable. On the basis of a few memorable roles in the distant past of her career, Robin Wright is offered a deal by the all-powerful studio Miramount, a barely-coded stand-in for Miramax, whose head, wait for it, Anders, is the slightly too aggressive and charismatic Danny Houston. And given the current revelations about Harvey Weinstein, I find this interesting that this of all weeks is the week that I bring it up. The plot is fairly messy. Basically, Miramount say that they want to upload all of Robin Wright's details, appearance details, facial expressions, and forever own a digital version of the actress own her body before it ages beyond what's considered usable. And I feel like I remember Danny Houston saying that 
you know, before you get too old and we can't use you as we want anymore. So they will forever own her rights to cast her as they please. Once Wright signs the rights to her digitised body over to Miramount, for although she does kind of bulk at the idea, her doing so is hardly ever a question. The film then travels into the parallel animated zone of Abrahama. And from here, it gets even more wonderful and beautiful and frustrating and the plot becomes even more elliptical. So the entire second half almost is animated and along with, I think, Max Richter's score, uh, it's just it's so immersive. Even though it is animated, it's very immersive. The camera's constantly moving, constantly fluid. Plus we get uh, Bob Dylan... Uh, and Leonard Cohen on the soundtrack, Forever Young and If It Be Your Will. I think the ultimate question asked by the film is which option does Robin Wright take of these two songs slash song titles? So it's a crazy film, but so beautiful and so divisive, but it's on my list. Cool, and I'm dying to watch that film. Thank you for reminding me that it exists. My Okay, so my number one is an obvious in many ways, but worth shouting out to. It is The Matrix which has been so, so influential in terms of recent dystopian depictions and sci-fi in general, um, and influential to the broader culture in positive and perhaps negative ways. We look at the rise of men's rights, red pill activism, but it's such a smart sci-fi film and influenced contemporary sci-fi in a way that not many other films I think have. There's so many ways that it's really interesting. I think one of the most interesting things to say about it is that it really taps into the identification process that we all go through when we watch a film with a standard narrative and identify with the protagonist. So in this case, very cleverly, the protagonist is the one, Neo, played by Keanu Reeves, and he sort of... The, the dystopian reality of the world is sort of revealed to him and he realises that he's living in this giant machine simulacrum of reality because these aliens are sort of harvesting human brains to do various things. I mean, it's really well shot. The action is justifiably, I think, lauded. But as well as that, it's very cleverly plotted, yeah, with this idea of one individual's journey and the idea of the audience members seeing them so closely identifying with this main character that the film's revelations are then sort of inevitably we start to question the nature of society around us and yes it's become a bit of a pat thing to say oh you know hashtag society or you know oh you know capitalism is bad because the matrix taught me but i think it, it did play particularly for young for people who were young when they watched it yeah, it strips away a lot about the current systems that we inhabit. So I think for those reasons, it will always be one of my favourite 21st century films. And I rewatched it actually a couple of weeks ago and was really struck by how well it holds up for me. Yeah, good film. Mm, cool. Don't ignore the sequels. But the anim- <laughs> the anim- actually, the Animatrix is really interesting too. Did you ever watch that? No. It's like a series of anime spin-offs that were combined in one like DVD that you could get and they're all directed by different filmmakers and they're worth checking out too yeah mm. I'm a big Wachowskis fan yeah yeah I've always got I've always got time for them yeah <laughs> yeah they always have such interesting visions um, so my number one I was thinking about La Jetée for quite a long time oh. because it is a fantastic film but then I was like well, actually if, when you look at most sci-fi films they're kind of often quite cold they're much more about ideas than people. And so I was like, well, what's the warmest, most human sci-fi film I can think of? Oh, Brazil. So my number one is also <laughs> Brazil. Um, because it does have this thing where there's obviously like such an affection. Like we saw this already for um, What If It Works. There's obviously such affection from the writer and director to the main characters. Mm. And I get this similar sort of warmth from Terry Gilliam to Jonathan Price's character. Even though this like this Sisyphusian task that he's got to try and do what's right and do the right thing against this extremely structured and bureaucratic world. It's just done in such a warmth and so funny. Like, there's hardly any funnier sci-fi films I can think of than mm. than Brazil. Mm. And I would probably put the uh, director's cut, not the original theatrical release yes. that he had so much trouble with, as, as my, the best example of this. Yeah, so uh, Brazil. Great. Um, well, my number one is The Andromeda Strain, 1971. Whoa. Technicolor sci-fi made at Universal Pictures by Robert Wise, an amazing director of all and every genre. 
he made some great early sci-fi horror like The Day the Earth Stood Still and would later make Star Trek, the motion picture. He's, you know, a great, got a great um, sci-fi slate. So this film starts with a very futuristic sciencey soundtrack written by Gil Melay. I'm not going to even attempt to describe it, but I'm just going to say it's got lots of mysterious beeps and stuff in it. And then the visual um, setup of the credits has, you know, a lot of kind of scientific phenomena. So you can see already that it's in the fabric of the film, in the music and the visuals of the credits that is being set up as a sci-fi. And then it's got such rich colours as well in the credits. You know, it's a Technicolor, so you think, well, it's going to take advantage of it. So all of these beautiful, like, reds and purples and blues in the credits. Special effects in this film actually done by Douglas Trumbull. No way, Who would go on to make Silent Running but also do the special effects for Blade Runner. Yeah, Um, and 2001. And 2001, yeah. Um, Yeah, yeah, so, you know, you've got all of this talent in the film. There are some terrific visual setups, not only because of the special effects designed by Trumbull, but because Robert Wise is such an experienced director. You know, visual setups, clever match cuts, fluid rhythm. It's really, really beautiful. It opens at nighttime in a desert town in New Mexico. Two men see, they look up and they see a flock of birds in the sky say things like I didn't notice them before and I didn't know buzzards fly at night so all of a sudden you get this sense that things are off anyway basically they discover that this entire town is filled with dead people due to a recently landed space satellite and some mysterious things that have gone wrong it's not really a futuristic film because it's not set in any year particular to its year of creation but I think it fits into this category because it imagines the wonderful universe-expanding possibilities of the future in an entirely dystopic and destructive way, dreaming that the future could be worse than the present because of efforts made at the present time. And so that's why I think it belongs. But it's just such a beautiful film. Um, I mean, so much dystopic stuff happened in the 1970s, uh, not in reality, although that too, but like in terms of fiction. I mean, you know, this this book, The Futurological Congress, was 1971 as well. And so it was such a brilliant decade for all sorts of, you know, close encounters of the third kind. So that's my number one. Cool. Go yeah, and good see choice. everyone. Um, it might have oh. a bit of an off-putting title, like it's not poetic like Blade Runner or anything. You know, it's, it's a great one. Cool. Thank you very much. You've given me two films to watch. Thank you. Yes. I have actually seen all of your films, so I'm sorry. But I could go and re-watch them. Um, but, you know. Well, would you go and see Demolition Man? I do need a to go and see Man. Demolition that Man. Is, oh, my God, yeah. 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 Thanks it's such for the a strange film, guys. And can I just do a very times. quick uh, near miss for Goddard's film Alphaville? Oh, good call. Because I, if you haven't seen it, I do recommend it. It's bizarre. I mean, he takes this pulp American character, actor Eddie Constantine, had performed in many uh, hard-bitten sort of noir films and transplants this character and the actor into this sci-fi dystopian setting. And it's quite a, it's a bizarre, bizarre film, but Mm. I really recommend it. Yep, for sure. Uh, Well, thank you very much for making it to the end of episode 34 of Cultural Capital. If you would like to rate or review us on iTunes, we'd be very grateful. You can follow us on Facebook at Cultural Capital Podcast, and we're on Twitter at The Cult Cap Pod. You can find me at Andy Ricky. I'm at Eloise Laurie Ross. And I'm at Anders Furs. And we think you're great. Thank you. Thanks, everyone.